Well, I promised you uh, last time the most unusual sermon you'll ever hear at AFBC this week, so I'm glad you came. And it stems, the, the unusualness of it, it stems from uh, what happens when you teach through the Bible systematically, um, through a book of the Bible. Because uh, that whoever's teaching systematically through the Bible can't skip things. He's got to like deal with what's actually there. So if he doesn't like a certain subject, he's still got to preach on it, right? So kind of keeps us preachers honest when you do that. That's one of the good things. So you can't avoid the hard parts. Got to face them, right? So, and it's good for you too, because you have an opportunity to, to think through the hard parts with me, if we're doing that, if I'm doing that. And if you preach topically and not verse by verse, you can, you know, just grab a verse here and do a book over there and do a psalm here, and then you'd never have to deal with those things. But when you teach straight through, you got to deal with it. The verse by verse thing means doing hard things. And today's hard thing is unusually hard, because <laughs> it's actually about the text itself. So. Should it be in the Bible? That's actually the hard part here. Is, is it a mistake to have the text I skipped over last week in the Bible? So, now if you've been with us for a while, you've already been exposed to what you would call textual issues. Um, if you've been around here for a while. Like there's a line here or a line there that does not appear in all of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And usually modern Bibles will relegate those lines to the margin and give a little note there and tell you why it, it's there and because it doesn't appear in a lot of things. I think the last time we actually dealt with that was 1 John chapter 5 verse 8 which has a, a very famous um, little section there that has been moved to the margin, properly so, properly so. So if you take a, a sentence that somebody that once wrote in the margin, this is what happened. It used to be in the margin and then somebody moved it into the text. They either thought it was a mistake in the transcript and it belonged in the text, or they thought it was so valuable they moved it into the text. That was 1 John 5.8, so I, I don't worry about that right now. But the manuscript evidence is really clear that it doesn't belong in the Bible. So somebody added it way, way, way later. And again, it probably was a note, and then somebody said, oh, they meant to put that in there, and then they moved it over into there. So it ended up in the King James Bible. So that's the kind of example we're talking about here. So modern Bibles take things like that and they usually put them in the margin or they put brackets around them, something like that, or some kind of note, right? The flag it, they flag it in some way. So there's a number of, when you look at all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament down through the ages, and there's literally thousands of them, there's thousands of them, um, there's little variations and that guys that are copying uh, make. There could be a different tense of a verb or um, a misspelling or something like that and those kind of things are called variants and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of variants. But they're usually like real tiny little things, you know, and um, you can kind of tell where they are by comparing different manuscripts and that's, that's how that whole system works. So there's a whole, it's impossible not to have variants before the printing press because if you, have, has anybody here ever tried to copy something exactly by hand? I mean, you probably make mistakes. Sometimes you skip a line or you write the same line twice or something goes wrong, you know, that kind of thing happens. So, um, and again, uh, there's tons of ways that can happen and there's a whole field of study called textual criticism and scholars that are trained in the transmission of ancient texts identify variants, they catalog variants 
and they try to figure out how they got there. Okay, that kind of a thing. Okay, it happens. It automatically happens. If, so if you've ever copied, a, copied something, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's even easier to make mistakes with ancient Greek because there's no space between the words. So it's even harder, right? All the letters run together, and that makes copying even more tricky and getting the verbs right more tricky. Like, here's a picture of what's called P46. It's a, it's a copy of 1 Corinthians, very early copy of 1 Corinthians. It's like from, they estimate that it was written about AD 180. So it's within 100, 130 years or so of Paul actually writing the original letter, and this is an early copy of it. Um, here's another, here's another um, Greek manuscript here, this next one. You see how the words all run together? So you got to copy that and don't make any mistakes, right? <laughs> so anyway, you can take those down. But the vast majority of what are called variants are the kind of human mistakes you might accidentally make, right? Not checking carefully or, or mishearing. Some manuscripts are copied because somebody is up here like this and there's five or six monks down there writing and they're saying it. So if they mishear it, they might write it a little differently or, or make a mistake that way. So there's all kinds of ways little mistakes can in, enter into a text. I want you to pull that white sheet out of your bulletin. It's kind of a little primer for today. It's a little helper. It says, know the players up at the top. But I want you to skip down to the bottom section where it says classic scribal error. So we were preaching through Revelation on uh, Friday nights not too long ago when we actually came into this. And Shannon, I think you had the oddball text because you had a New King James Bible, right? So um, Revelation 22:14 reads like this. Now I have a New American Standard, 1995 New American Standard. <laughs> and it's really important that you know that. And mine says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. The King James says, blessed are they who do his commandments that they may have the right to, to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. So the whole sentence is the same except there's a, a huge difference between wash your robes and do the commandments, right? I mean, you just go, what? How, how, is that, how, did that, how, do, how would you make that mistake? And so you've got actually the example right here at the bottom of this little sheet here. So I know you can't read Greek probably. Most of you don't. So I put it in the English letters down below, but if you just look at it, it's really similar. It's really similar. And, and if you spoke it and guys were writing it down, one guy might wa write down, wash their robes, and the other guy write down, do their, his commandments, because they're so similar. So like the tas and tolas is do his commandments, and autu is his, so tas and tolas autu is do his commandments. But Tas stolas, you know what stola is? That's like that, that wraparound garment that Greeks and Romans wear, you know? So tas stolas auton is their, their garments, right? So one is the commandments, entolas uh, is commandments, his commandments, and auton and autu are really similar, his and their. It's very similar. There's only one little letter difference, and it looks very similar. So that's how that happened. So it's really obvious. And so you know, as we've had way more discoveries of manuscripts and stuff like that, they figured out that this, uh, the, the King James Version is not the normal version. That was a mishearing somewhere, how that entered in. I'm going to get into that a little bit more later, but just, just an example, okay? So which is it? Wash the robes or do his commandments? Well, how do you know, how do you know 
which one is right. So a textual critic goes through a process of trying to figure that out, and that's called textual criticism. So if you had, so if you had two manuscripts of the Bible, that's all you had, and one said wash your robes and the other said do his commandments, which one is right? Well, you don't know. I mean, you don't know, right? I mean, so um, if you have a, if you have several manuscripts, let's say you had six, and one said wash your robes and five said do his commandments, just as an example. Well, then you start saying, well, maybe that one, the one that's out of sync is, is the issue. But maybe, maybe that one um, is really early, like it's from the second century, like that other one I mentioned. And the other ones are from like the 12th century. Well, that changes the dynamic a little bit too. So I'm just giving you an example of how you, you have to think as a textual critic about how these things can happen and how you weigh those kinds of things. So if you have a variety of manuscripts from different times and in different places, because obviously if you lived in Spain or uh, France or Italy or Caesarea in uh, the Middle East, those mistakes come in and then there tends to be that the copies that come from that area become part of a family of manuscripts as copies after copies after copies are made, right? That's how they kind of enter in. So if they are from a wide different area and you have multiple copies and they're the same and then there's one oddball over here, you go, that's probably the mistake. That's where somebody misheard or miswrote or something like, or brought something in that wasn't there. So that's how you actually find that out. So um, if you have copies that are much older than others, the tendency is to accept the older ones as the more original, weighing in other factors as well. So, for example, now I'm got to keep your brain with me, okay? Don't go to sleep yet. <laughs> there was a guy named Erasmus who was a great Roman Catholic scholar, and he lived right at the time of Martin Luther. He was old when Luther was young. And he's the first guy, after many, many centuries, to the printing press had just been invented, okay? So he printed a copy of the Greek New Testament. Now he lived in Europe, and in Europe, the Latin Vulgate that was there for centuries, that's what everybody read, Latin. But, the, but Greek had been rediscovered. There was a rebirth of learning, the Renaissance. And as a Renaissance scholar, he collected all the Greek manuscripts he could find, which was about eight, eight or ten, there were some in England and they'd got like six from Switzerland and that's all he had and he um, put together an edited version of the Greek New Testament and published it. That's what Martin Luther grabbed that, learned Greek, studied it and wrote the German Bible out of it, right? William Tyndale created the English Bible out of it. They burned him at the stake in 1536 for doing it, but he did it, and that was a good one. And that became the foundation of his Bible, became the foundation of the King James Bible in 1611. And they were all based on the um, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. But how many manuscripts did he have? Not very many, not very many. He worked with, like I said, just a few from England and six or seven from Switzerland, and he did as best he could with what he had at the time, right? So the King James Bible is based on about a dozen Western European Greek manuscripts, and all of those manuscripts were a thousand years at least after the Apostles' time. They were late, late in history. So that's what he did, and it was a great help, a great benefit, and all of that. But now, 
we have literally thousands of Greek manuscripts and many of them much older than the ones that Erasmus had. So using textual criticism, this sort of science and art of weighing all of these things, it's, a, it's not a hard science because you don't know some things, right? So it, you're, it's an art form, you're weighing possibilities and probabilities and how things happen. So they have to really think through all this kind of stuff. But all these manuscripts are collated, uh, compared, the thousands that we have, and uh, that informs, all of that work informs the text you have in a modern Bible. So I've got a 1995 New American Standard. So, um, so the guys that translated that, or the guys that translated your ESV, or your NIV, and all of that, they're working off all of this work that's been done by these textual scholars who have now thousands of Greek manuscripts to work with. So it's quite a complicated thing. Okay, so we actually have an embarrassment of riches. And the wonderful thing is the variations, these things called variants that enter into texts or families of texts, they're all, almost all really minor little tiny things, little misspellings or this or that. Now some people get mad if we have a few changes in a translation that are based on this abundance of information that we had because it's different than the King James Bible. So they, they get really upset about that. But um, we shouldn't. Just like 1 John 5, 8. Their whole sentence was brought into the text from a, from a marginal note. And we know that because we actually have that text with it in the margin. And that's what Erasmus used. You know, So we know that that one's wrong. And that, that's properly put into the margin there. That sentence was in the Latin Bible, but it wasn't in any Greek manuscripts. So clearly it didn't belong in the original after all these thousands from all these different lands and all this different stuff. Wasn't in there, doesn't belong in there. So it, it's, it's moved to the margin, right? Why do people get mad? Because they thought that they thought that 1 John 5, 8 that was, at, that was moved over was valuable for doctrine. It, it supported the Trinity. That's why they wanted it in there. Well, the Trinity doesn't need that. The Trinity's all over the New Testament. You don't need that. But that's why they get mad about it. So um, there's a lesson there. Uh, useful, because something's useful doctrinally, is never an excuse to mess with the Bible or get what it actually says wrong. You don't want to do that. You want to be honest in your scholarship and get to the real meaning of the text, right? What's the real text in the first place, right? We want an accurate text that's as close to the originals as we can get. And what we have is very, very accurate. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. It's very accurate. It's a miracle of preservation that we have so much that our ancient Christian forebears left us by carefully copying the Bible. So not only are there thousands of Greek manuscripts but we have ancient translations in other languages from the early church days and we can take those and compare those and see what text they use to make the translation so we can figure it out that way. Also the early church fathers, oh there's all kinds of guys you know in the early church years, they quote the Bible all the time in Greek and, uh, and in Latin as well, but they're quoting it. And so you could literally reassemble the entire New Testament just from the quotes that are made by the church fathers. So that matters as well. So the bottom line is there's, yes, there's all kinds of variants, all kinds. Most are very minor. And there's two things we can say with confidence about the manuscripts that our Bibles are based on. One is that no Christian doctrines no Christian doctrines at all are affected by variants. 
There's none. It's just, it's too solid for that. So there's, there's nothing that we believe that dependent on any of these little variants that are found in the different manuscripts. Even opponents of Christianity acknowledge that. They know that. So, so God wants us to know and believe certain things and those things are unaffected by these little variants that appear in various manuscripts. The other thing is variants that are longer, like longer sections to deal with, a full phrase or a sentence like 1 John 5, 8, um, things like that, they're almost always added. In other words, nobody was taking away from scripture. There's, it's always some sort of addition, always or almost always. There's just, it just, things don't get taken away. Um, there's reasons for that. Um, scribes were very careful not to do that and they were trained not to take away. Even if they were curious about something, they wouldn't take it, they wouldn't take things away, they would um, keep things in. So, why are we talking about this? Because we're studying John's Gospel and we got to chapter 8. That's why. So there's two large sections in the New Testament, I mean relatively large sections, whose authenticity is in question, okay? And one of them is there in John 8. Most modern scholars in the field of manuscript evidence and textual criticism believe that these two sections are added to the scripture, okay, at some point. So, there's only two in the New Testament that are anything substantial. So these larger portions in modern Bibles, like mine, are usually marked off in some way. Most often they're put in brackets, you know, those little bracket signs, right? And then there's a note in the margin saying something like, these verses do not appear in the earliest or best manuscripts. That's what they would say, something like that. My Bible says that. Now they also do that with some of the little smaller phrases or sentences, but these two big sections, it's really key. So. Are, if they are doubtful, they're in brackets with a note, okay? That's the best way to say it. If they're doubtful, whether they're authentic or not, they're in brackets with a note in the margin. Now, if you have a King James Bible, they might say, we don't do that stuff. So, they might not be that, that way in there. But my new King, I have a new King James Bible, and it is in there in brackets, the same thing with the note. So, one of those is the end of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel. After verse 8, there's a, a, a bunch of other verses and there's virtually no manuscript evidence that's ancient for those other verses. Um, anything after verse 8 is doubtful. If it is authentic, if Mark didn't write it, then one of two things happened. Either the end of that scroll was lost somewhere and it just sort of got torn off or ended or before a lot of copying was done, or more likely, Mark, I think, Mark chose to end his gospel in a really artistic, wonderful way, but without actually having Jesus appear in a resurrected, glorified body. In other words, his gospel ends with the angel telling the women at the tomb that Jesus is risen, and they go away glorifying the Lord. That's how it ends. But that's how he ends a lot of sections in his gospel. So it's actually a perfect end for the way he writes. But, um, but somebody felt like, well, you got to have Jesus like standing there and saying something, so... They kind of, somebody kind of took from Matthew and Luke and even the book of Acts and sort of wrote a little mini history of the resurrection and added it on to, because they were unhappy with verse 8. That's what I think happened. Now it could be that was lost. The end was lost and somebody did the same thing though. They created this thing. 
So my Bible, there's even another ending that some manuscripts have that's a little short little summary thing. My Bible has both. So the first long ending that doesn't belong there is in brackets and the other little ending is in like italics. So, so it tells you some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts have that, but most of the early manuscripts don't have anything after verse 8. So that kind of explains all that right there. You following with me so far? You tracking? Okay, all right, good. So the big discussions that go on in the academic world and the arguments, they're not just based on manuscript evidence, it's also based on the author's style and the word choices that he makes, and that's a little more fudgy, but the manuscript evidence is the most important stuff. And many scholars say that the longer ending doesn't read like Mark, it's not his vocabulary, it feels cobbled together by these other summary statements from other things, it has a vibe that feels like he's trying to tie things up for us when it's not really the flow of his gospel and all that kind of stuff. Maybe, that's probably, I think that's actually right, that what we have is cobbled together from other sources, but um, on the other side of that argument though is the long version of Mark is very early. So there are some examples of it that are very early. So it happened early on in church history. Second century church fathers quote the long end of Mark. Second century, that's like within one or two generations of the apostles. They quote that longer section of Mark as if it's real. So, so they had it, they knew about it. Um, it. So that makes it a more interesting question, right? So the vast majority of Greek manuscripts have it too, but there's two major early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that are almost complete New Testaments. You know, they get rotted and corrupted a little bit, but um, they don't have it. They don't have it. So if you look at the little handout again, where it says no key documents in the middle there, for some reason I'm going from the bottom up on my handout, but hang with me. So. There's a top third century scholar named Eusebius. He wrote the history of the Christian church, the first official history of the Christian church. And he said that nearly all copies of Mark that he had end at verse 8. That's what he said. So these guys were discussing this stuff way back when. This isn't new. These have always been under discussion. And then Jerome, Jerome is the man right after Eusebius' time that translated the Bible into Latin. He created the Latin Vulgate that the Catholic Church still uses today. And that's in the fourth century. And he said, Jerome said, the best manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. Okay, so he knew about others, but he said the best ones, the, the best uh, copied ones end at verse 8. So that's two major voices, Eusebius, and Jerome saying that it was not the norm to include that ending of Mark in the transcript, in the manuscripts that they had, okay? So all in all, it's a very questionable ending. Does it matter whether you keep Mark's long ending or it stops at verse 8? Does it matter? It really doesn't matter because everything else in that ending of Mark is in Matthew or Luke or the book of Acts. So it really doesn't matter. It doesn't affect, that's why I'm saying it doesn't affect our faith any if, if one of these things is uh, missing or something like that. So, I got to tell you, honestly, I've had some conversations about this over my years, but um, nobody has ever been really upset about not having the ending of Mark uh, the, after, verse, after verse 8. Now, the other long text that is doubtful, Mark is the first one, there, I said there were two long ones, Mark is the first one, the end of Mark, and the other one 
that many consider doubtful is where we're supposed to be studying in John's Gospel. And people do worry about this one belonging in the New Testament or not. Way more than they worry about Mark's Gospel belonging in the New Testament. Why do they do it? Because it's one of the most loved stories and the most, one of the most quoted stories in the Bible, especially in the life of Christ. In fact, I can hear Maureen O'Hara <laughs> in How Green Was My Valley right now, jumping up at church in a fine Irish temper when the deacons are publicly shaming some girl that got pregnant, and she jumps up and she says, go and sin no more, Jesus said. <laughs> So we all know those words, and she knew them. And that much-loved story just breathes the love and the mercy of Jesus towards sinners, and at the same time puts self-righteous people in their place. I mean, it's a great story. It's, it's not only just a good story, it's masterfully told. It's, it's brilliant, and it feels authentic. And that's the story we skipped over last week. Because of manuscripts. Okay. Now I want to read it for you. I want to read the story because I don't want you to say we never read that. <laughs> John chapter 8 verse 2. Let me read it for you. I'm going to start at verse 2. It actually is the last verse of chapter 7 as part of it. But that's just talking about what was going on around it. So uh, John 8 2. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court... They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we were commanded to stone such women. What then do you say? So you know how the story goes, right? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. It sounds like they actually expected him to be merciful. And they're waiting for that, because they can say, Ah, you're a lawbreaker, you're, you're not supporting Moses. But Jesus stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground but when they persisted in asking him he straightened up and said to them he who was out without sin among you let him be the first to throw a stone at her and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground when they heard it they began to go out one by one beginning with the older ones and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Right? It's a perfect story. I mean, it's a perfect story. The way it's told, the balanced message that it contains, the way it brings together the highest qualities of Jesus, his wisdom, his compassion towards sinners, and at the same time affirming the seriousness of sin. All of that, it's so him. So uh, we see him all loving, uncompromising, all loving, and with unparalleled wisdom. I mean, he's wiser here than Solomon. It's brilliant. He's brilliant how he handled this whole situation. Even the details, him writing on the ground, him standing up or bending down. I mean, it's an eyewitness account. That's what it reads like. And very much like other parts of John in that way. And then it has that little bit of mystery in there. What did he write? What was he writing? Was he just scribbling or was he writing some commandment or word or something? You know, who knows? 
So all the reasons we love this story uh, and, and why it's quoted so often, it, it, it's why it's beloved. I mean, it's just, it's just all there. It's, it's a great story. And I love it. And many other people love it. And that brings us to the big questions. Two, should it be in the Bible? And should people like me preach it or skip over it? Those are the two big questions. So should we tell people that probably doesn't belong in John's gospel that a broad consensus of scholars do not think it was originally in John's gospel or should we just pretend like there's no problem with it? You see, what, what are we going to do? That's what, those are real questions, right? Now Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the great Baptist preacher from the 19th century, he knew about all these problems as well. So he had one answer for this. He knew what was going on because the Greek Textual criticism and the discovery of manuscripts was going on during his time. So he was very aware of all of that stuff. He said this, it is unwise to be making every old lady distrust the only Bible she can get at or what is more likely mistrust you for falling out with her cherished treasure. So he would say, leave it and preach it and don't make a thing about it. That's what he would say. And a lot of people say that. I'm not sure he would say that today because the old lady, he's being a little patriarchal there, because <laughs> old men could have the same problem. But um, think, think about this, they, they, they had a Bible, so the little old lady and the little old men, they had a Bible that didn't have brackets or notes. And most people probably didn't know anything about manuscript issues. Nowadays it's pretty well known, all of that. That, that all those discoveries and and it's in your Bible that it's in brackets and if you pay any attention while you're reading you're gonna hey that's in brackets and there's a note and it says many early manuscripts do not have this moment. you know that kind of thing so so I think he might have had a different attitude about it today but I get why he's thinking that way more recently Andreas Kostenberger who's like the evangelical Johannine scholar Johannine means he's a John guy he thoroughly studies John stuff. That's all he does. And I use his books when I'm preparing stuff for part of this stuff. He's got a great book called Encountering John. You should get it if you want to study the gospel. But he says, in differently from Mr. Spurgeon, proper conservatism and caution suggests that the passage be omitted from preaching in churches and it should not be regarded as part of the Christian canon. And if you read his book, Encountering John, it's a pretty large book with a lot of information and there's like one little, tiny little paragraph that says, that section doesn't even belong in this gospel. So he doesn't even, he doesn't even go through the story, he doesn't even talk about it. It's like it never happened. So that's the other side. That's, so those are two sort of extreme versions of this thing. Now there's a guy named Dan Wallace who's a top expert in manuscripts. In fact, in the adult Sunday school class about a month ago, we ran a whole lecture he gave at Dallas Theological Seminary on manuscripts. It's an excellent thing. If you want to uh, hear it, send me a text and I'll get you a YouTube link or something. But um, it's a great talk. And uh, he says um, something about this as well. He says the inclusion of the story in modern translations reflects, and now he's quoting, I'm quoting him, a tradition of t timidity. In other words, if you include it in the Bible, you are being timid, right? Because we know it should go, but we're too scared to mess with it. That's what he says, right? So, um, and he's very solid on manuscripts. He's one of the 
greatest defenders of the authenticity of the New Testament um, through scholarship. It's, he's brilliant, actually. I'm not sure it's being timid. Um, there are arguments for keeping it. So I want to run you through real quick the arguments for keeping it and the arguments for not keeping it. So um, let me first go with the arguments for it not being authentic. So none of the second century church fathers, so we're talking about the second century is 100 to 200 AD, right? AD 100 to 200. None of them mention it. And we have lots of writings from that time of the church fathers. They never mention it. Second, when it does appear in John's Gospel, it has more little variance in it than almost any other text in the New Testament. And usually if something has all kinds of variance, it means it's being played with a lot, a lot more. There's a lot more curiosity about it or, or that draws a lot more interest of the textual critic because why does it have so many variants? Because it probably isn't original. That's, that's sort of how they think. Third, in some manuscripts, it appears in really weird places. So for example, a couple of it well, actually, there's a couple of this examples of this story appearing in Luke's Gospel. Just a couple. I mean, there's thousands of copies, but there's a couple of times when it appears in Luke's Gospel, not in John's Gospel. And then there's places it moves around in John's Gospel. So there's some really early versions, little early copies that have it at the very end. Like after chapter 21, you have the story of the woman taken in adultery. And then there's other ones that it appears in chapter um, 7 but after verse 36 not after verse 52 in other words it just moves now are there a lot of manuscripts like that where it's moved no but there's enough to make you go what's going on you know they didn't know where to put it they didn't know where it came from so it's being moved around but they love it so they want to keep it and I love it too I want to keep it too but is it authentic it's more important that we be honest about its authenticity than that we keep our favorite story so Let's see. I, I'm, really, I'm really intrigued by people putting it at the end. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But could they have thought, the people that put it at the end of John's Gospel, could they have thought it is a real teaching of John, but it wasn't in the Gospel. But they want you to know about it. Is that possible? I'll come back to that idea. Because I think there's something to that. Number four. The main reason it is regarded as not original is because it's missing from the earliest manuscripts, including the major manuscripts. Now, look at your little handout thing and look at key, key documents here, key documents. Now, listen to what I'm going to say. There's no Greek manuscript in existence that has the story of the woman caught in adultery before the 8th century. So that's many hundreds of years after the time of Christ. There's one exception though. And the one exception is the Codex Bizet. And Codex Bizet is from about AD 400 and it does have the story. But the Codex Bizet is kind of special. It's not just a manuscript, it's, a, uh, it's in both Latin and Greek. And it's called a codex. A codex is sort of like a book. You know, Christians kind of invented the book or made the book popular because everything was done on scrolls. But if you want a whole New Testament, a scroll won't fit on there. So they invented it or they took some idea that had been around but not used much and it had these things that opened like this, like a book. 
And on the Codex Bizet, it has Greek on one page and Latin on the other page. So you wanted to read something, you would turn to Matthew chapter 7, for example, and it would be in Greek on one page and Latin on the other page. So it is a Greek text of the New Testament that's fairly early, about 400 AD. But that text is kind of funky. In other words, there's more variants in the Codex Bizet's Greek than there are typically in manuscripts. It's, it's a funkier one. So, you know, usually when you see a lot more variants, it's something sloppy about it or it's not as reliable, it's not considered that great. But the story is there, so it shows that it was there kind of early, right? And that's the earliest manuscript that we have of this John 8 story of the woman caught in adultery. But I think that it's combined with a Latin text is kind of important here because it really starts to show what scholars have discerned, you can't prove it, but it seems pretty clear that the story of the adulterous woman is a Western European story and that's how it got into the text. So because it's with Latin, that's how, we, that's how I'm thinking that way. Why in the West and not in the East? Why did it show up in the West and not in the East? The story seems to have more support in the Western Latin speaking half of the Roman Empire than it does in the Eastern half of the Roman Empire where Greek was the dominant language, right? Yes, Rome was a Latin empire, but they conquered all these Greek speaking countries so they didn't stop speaking Greek because they were conquered. In fact, more the people in the West had to learn Greek more because that was the more developed culture linguistically. But anyway, um, it's interesting because John the Apostle ministered in the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, right? John spent decades as an apostle. He was the longest living apostle long after the others were killed in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. That's where he ministered for many years. And that's a Greek speaking area of the empire. But here's the thing. There's, so after the apostles, you have what they're called church fathers. You have the ones that were right after the apostles and then you have ones that are another century later and then you have more and they, they have names for all these guys, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, the Patristic Fathers, all these kind of names for them. There's no Greek speaking church fathers. They write in Greek, they think in Greek, they do Greek. There's no church fathers that mention the adulterous woman's story until the 12th century. The 12th century. It's more than a thousand years later. And no Greek manuscripts exist that have it until the 8th century which is very late. So now Eusebius, that church historian guy I mentioned before, he's a fourth century historian in the East, he wrote that he heard of the story by a second century writer. He's aware, Papias was his name, he's aware of Papias telling the story but he doesn't mention anything about it being in the Gospel of John. In fact he says it was in something called the Gospel of Hebrews which we don't have. So, and that's not an apostolic book. So, the Western Church Fathers mention the story much earlier than the Eastern Church Fathers mention the story. But even in the West, the very early 2nd and 3rd century Latin Church Fathers that spoke Latin, they never quoted. So in the early church, so we're talking about the generation right after the Apostles or the generation right after that generation. So Irenaeus, um, Tertullian, Cyprian, guys like that. Tertullian and Cyprian did write on adultery specifically as an issue and never mentioned it once. 
never mentioned the passage. Irenaeus is the most interesting guy of all to me. So John the Apostle had a disciple named Polycarp, and Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. So he's right there. He's a spiritual grandson of the Apostle John. So if anybody knows about it, he should know about it. And we have quite, we have a whole book of Irenaeus's writings. He wrote against the heretics and the Gnostics and all that kind of stuff. Never mentions it. Never mentions that story. It's like it didn't exist or he didn't know about it. So it seems to have entered the Western manuscript family in the fourth century somewhere. And Ambrose of Milan, he was the Bishop of Milan, fourth century Latin church father. He knew about the story in John's gospel. But these other key men that were contemporaries or right about his time, right after his time, Augustine, St. Augustine, we call him Augustine now, and Jerome, Jerome's the guy that translated the Bible into Latin, created the Latin Vulgate. They knew the story from John's Gospel. Now they're, they're Western writers, right? They knew the story that was in John's Gospel, but both of them say, Augustine and Jerome, it's not in every copy of the Gospel of John that they have. So they know it's sometimes there and sometimes not there. After that, the story of the woman caught in adultery has been part of John's gospel in the Western world. After Jerome translated it, because Jerome had a choice. I've got copies with it and copies without it. He's translating the Bible into Latin. He includes it. And that becomes the Bible of the Middle Ages and everything else. The Latin Bible in Western Europe for until Erasmus does his Greek thing a thousand years later almost. you know. So uh, that's how it entered into our Bible. Through, through that, through that Latin Vulgate and all the work that did after that. But even those guys that did that work said it wasn't in all their copies of the Gospel of John either. Okay, you tracking with me now? So that's why it's in our Bibles and once something is there for hundreds of years, even if it's from a Latin source, what are you going to do? Throw it out of the Bible? But no, but you can't put it in brackets. Then that's what our Bibles do. So the one that is in the majority of manuscripts, and there, of course the majority of manuscripts has it, because the majority of them are late. But yes, you can definitely say the majority of Greek manuscripts have the story of the woman caught in adultery. But they're typically much later. So that's the argument for its authenticity. It's in the majority. And as I said, it's a perfect story. It's beautiful. So it's worthy to be in the Bible. But you, the, the person that wants to include it has a problem. They have to explain how it got taken out of so many manuscripts or it was unknown. Now St. Augustine who wanted to keep it had a reason for that. He had a reason for keeping it. And he said the early church fathers thought that a woman committing adultery was just about the worst thing there was in the universe. And that Jesus doesn't condemn it strongly enough. So they took it out. And here's what he actually says. This is what Augustine says. Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress. As if he had said, as if he had said sin no more had granted her permission to sin. It's like, they think that him saying sin no more is just giving her permission to sin. That's what these weak characters do. He says, I suppose. So remember, Augustine and Jerome lived at a time when some Greek manuscripts of, of, uh, had it, the story, and others didn't have it. 
So he's got to explain if he wants to keep it, and he wants to keep it because it's such a beautiful story. It's a great story. He has to explain. Well, that's his explanation. Is that probable that these early church fathers didn't want people committing adultery, so they took it out of the Bible? He doesn't offer any proof of it, and it's a pretty serious charge. Could it be true? Of, well, it could be true. I mean, it's possible that it's true, but you'd have to believe that a vast number of people agreed together in removing a major story out of the last living apostle, out of all the copies they had because of that issue. And they all decided to do it together. A lot of people decided to do it together. That's kind of hard to believe. It's almost, um, and like I said earlier, almost all variants are added to a text, like the first John 5, 8 variant. They're not taken away. Scribes just didn't do that. So probably Augustine is blowing smoke a little bit there to keep it. And I get why he wants to keep it, because I love it too. Well, what about comparing the thousands of manuscripts we have today? Well, words are occasionally added, but not deleted. So that really works against that argument. And there, the other thing against this is Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel. There's a very sinful woman in that gospel that it, her story's in all the manuscripts. Nobody took it out of there. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36, remember that story? Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered in the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's what she is. And that doesn't mean she smoked too much or anything like that. She was a sinner. She was known, right? And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She's got money. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And he kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. He let her touch him in a Pharisee's house, a known sinner, and kiss his feet, a woman. That's way more scandalous than go and sin no more. It's, it's way worse than that. And that's not a question section story or anything at all. No, there's no... Nobody says that doesn't belong in the Bible. There's nobody that tried to remove that from the Bible or anything like that. And then in verse 47, Jesus actually pronounces her forgiven just straight out. So I don't think godly men would cut out John 8 and leave Luke 7 in if that was what their thinking was. I just don't think that would happen. Somebody might do it, but not a whole generation of people. That just wouldn't happen. So, final conclusion here. Getting close. <laughs> What do we do with John 8? What do we do with it? What is the John 8 passage? What is it anyway? Because this just doesn't happen throughout the New Testament. It's a unique situation. What should I do with it as a pastor? Now I think maybe I should browbeat those who want to keep it into submission by rigorously applying argument and logic about manuscripts. That's what I think I should do. No, not really. That's not really what I think I should do. Maybe I should say to those that want to remove it, I should read to them Revelation 22:19 and add curses upon them for wanting to take it out of the, of the Bible. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part in the tree of life and from the holy city. I could read that and say, you'd better keep it. Or maybe I should just respect the opinions of those who differ about this. Yeah, let's do that because it's a, there's a legitimate question about it. The reason this story stayed in the Bible so long is because 
nothing about it challenges what we know about Jesus and everything about it reinforces what we know about Jesus. It's totally him, right? I mean, it's just who he is. It's, it's a, it very much captures his, his person. It exemplifies the man we know. So what's my personal opinion? I think you should pay attention to the marginal notes. I think they're right. That's my personal opinion. That said, it did come from somewhere. It did come from somewhere. And as I said, it is a magnificently constructed story and I personally love it. And because the Lord God did allow it to be in our Bibles for century after century after century after Jerome's time, um, maybe he wants us to know about it too. John does say at the end of his gospel in chapter 20 verse 30 he said therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. That's how chapter 20 ends. Many other signs don't you think that would also include many other words right Jesus said many other things that are not recorded in this gospel. And John outlived all the other apostles and he taught for decades in the chief cities of Asia Minor. So the story itself may well be his. It may be his. John's oral teaching about Jesus. And some good men thought it was so wonderful that they stuck it on the end of John's gospel. To just include it with his writings because it was so well known. So we mentioned the manuscripts that put it at the end. We actually have manuscripts that did that. Maybe that's where it started, becoming connected with scripture. I sure want to think that's the case because that gives it some weight. Actually, John 21, the ch John 20 is actually the end of the gospel in terms of the way you write a book. And then you have this whole other story in John chapter 21, which we'll get to, which doesn't question. It's just unusual because the gospel actually sort of ends in chapter 20. So already we have something kind of an appendix to his gospel. So that that was also to be an appendix or somebody thought this is a worthy story that John used to tell. That kind of makes sense. That's very possible. So let me finish by quoting one of the excellent Bible commentators I use a lot who thinks the story of the adulterous woman should be in our Bibles. William Hendrickson. He said, our conclusion, our final conclusion then, in other words his conclusion, is this, though it cannot now be proved this story formed an integral part of the fourth gospel, neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. We believe moreover that what is here recorded really took place and contains nothing that is in conflict with the apostolic spirit. Hence, Instead of removing this section from the Bible, it should be retained and used for our benefit. Ministers should not be afraid to base sermons upon it. On the other hand, all, on the other hand, he says, all the facts concerning textual evidence should be made known. I respect that. I say amen. And that's what we tried to do today. I'm making the facts known to you about it. Don't be afraid of legitimate scholarship with regard to the text of the Bible. The manuscript evidence for the Bible overwhelmingly reveals that it's a solid, trustworthy text because we have so many manuscripts and they all say the same thing, basically. There is no variant 
Even those two larger ones we talked about today in Mark 6 and John chapter 8 that change one Christian doctrine. There's no variants that change our doctrine. And if John chapter 1 was missing from some manuscripts or John chapter 20 was missing, that would be really serious. But they're not. Nor is John chapter 2, nor John chapter 3, nor John chapter 4, etc., etc., etc. Those aren't in question at all. So you can tell yourself how well the New Testament is because as you read through your New Testament, just notice when those brackets are there because they're almost never there. Because the vast majority of your New Testament, there's no question about it. There might be a verb question or a spelling question or a name question or something like that, but nothing important at all. Very, very few things. So the New Testament is the most certain text of any ancient book any ancient book because we have so many copies and from so many different places and over such a long period of time that we can compare and see and understand what the what the original text was so rejoice in that and delight that God has preserved his word so well okay I'm gonna pray but before I do so if you want to know more about this, I just copied a two-sheet thing. It's a front and back thing, and it's on the table in Abel Hall there, it's one of those little tables as you go in there. So if you want to grab one, of the, if you're interested in this, it'll talk about all these names I used. <laughs> but it'll give you the arguments from both sides, and I think you deserve to see the arguments from both sides, okay? Let's pray. Lord, you have preserved your word wondrously, and these few questionable places actually bear witness to the truth of everything else passed down faithfully from the apostles to us. Even in these men that wanted to keep it in the Bible from the fourth century, they, they knew that there were texts that didn't have it and the ones that did have it. They wanted to be faithful. So Lord, we ask you to exalt your word as it exalts your son and all that you've done through your chosen ones. We rejoice in the truth. We honor you. You have communicated to us so clearly and nowhere more so than in Jesus himself, in whose name we pray.